Excellent. Okay. I want to share with you some of my childhood. I, one of my first video game consoles was the Game Boy. Do you know what a Game Boy is? You guys don't know what a Game Boy is. A Game Boy is amazing technology. And it was even better when, when I got this device, there was a cable that you could connect two devices so that you could play Tetris against one another uh, by, by connecting it with this old wire. That was the coolest thing in the world to me back then. And I loved it. But since then, games have really taken a change, man. We, we, the games that we see today are very different from the games that used to be. In fact, there are articles now that talk about the nature of video games and the gaming industry. It's a billion-dollar industry. It's got the kind of uh, it's, it's got high-quality graphics and tracks that are amazingly well-produced. And as a consequence of that, people play games all over the place. Games have taken over, and they've become an, uh, a monstrous aspect of our society, which brings in bajillions of dollars. Bajillions. And that, yes, it's an actual number. But the problem with that is that for a lot of people, we know that games can be highly addictive because they transport us to a different place and a different time and the rules are easy it's not like life where where life is complicated and hard you can't quite figure out what's the right from the wrong or the relationships that are challenging in games you're, you're kind of sucked into a different reality where you can now participate in something that has clear defined rules and clear defined roles and there's points and there's leveling up and there's there's different elements that make it Kind of something that just sucks you in and makes you enjoy virtual reality as opposed to real life. Now, I'm not knocking games. I'm not knocking games in the least because I like games. We have a gaming console. We have a lot of stuff like that. But what I am saying here is that the problem with, with games today is that they're so addictive because they're made to be something that steals you into it and sucks you into a world that isn't real life. We're going to talk about real life today, specifically the Christian life. The Christianity that you're supposed to be part of is not a game. It's not something that you're supposed to take lightly. There's not a point system in the way that we think about it. Christianity in real life is something that takes us from, uh, from theology or from theory to practice, from, from lessons to life and from learning to living. That's the kind of life that we need to pursue. We can't live in this fantasy world. We have to practice Christianity in real life. And here's the thing, guys. What I'm going to share with you today from Paul's letter in the Colossians, perhaps the last time that we're in Colossians. I think we might be in it again this weekend if we meet together. The, this, this lesson here that you're about to hear may be stuff that you're like, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know that. But do you really know that if you're not practicing it? It's like having a cheat code. And, and, and you, know, you have a cheat code to a game, and it's up, down, left, right, you know, 15 times, and then start, A, B, or whatever. Uh, that's old school for you right there. That was a real cheat code. Uh, if you don't use that cheat code, do you really know it? I mean, okay, sidestep. I, I know some of you don't like to cheat on games, and you don't ever look at the, the, the player's manual, whatever. But if you know something but don't apply it, do you really know it? Is it truly knowledge if you know something and yet aren't practicing it? As someone once said, common sense is not common practice. And sadly, that's also true in the church where a lot of people engage in church-like activities, but the real Christian life that is uh, something that they're called to be part of is woefully lacking. So today we're going to talk about how our great love for Christ should cause us to live differently than the rest of the world. This is Christianity in real life. And for that, we're going to look at Colossians 4, starting at verses 2 through 4. This is picking up right on the end of where Evan left us off last weekend. And so Paul is now closing his letter. He gave instructions about how to obey your authorities, playing your role, and when Jesus joins the family, how that affects us. Now he's going to start talking about, okay, these are my landing instructions. He's landing the airplane, and there's things that he wants you to know. So here's what he says. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. 
And that's important there because this is, this is the, governing, the governing imperative. Continue steadfastly, steadfastly in prayer. And you're not only that, but you're to be watchful in prayer. You're to be thankful in prayer. And then he says, at the same time, I want you to pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word. In other words, I want to, I want to spread the gospel everywhere. I want to talk about the mystery of Christ, the, 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 the one who's preeminent, the one who's God in the flesh, who dies for our sins. He says that it's because of that I'm in prison. And he says, I want to pray that help me to pray that I might make it clear so that I can speak to everyone without issue. Man, I love this because there's so much packed in here for us as Christians. What we need to start with, uh, what we need to start with that Paul is making clear to us is that prayer ought to not be just something that we pay lip service to. Prayer ought to be a lifestyle. In fact, when Paul uses the word continue steadfastly in prayer, I like some of the translations. They, they use the word be devoted to prayer or uh, persevere in prayer. That's the idea here, that prayer is not something that is meant to just be a, a peripheral aspect of our lives. It's this idea of continuing to come back to it. Uh, if you're on a sports team, you know that when you go to practice, not, not, not always do you ever feel like going to practice, right? You, sometimes you wake up tired, you had a long night, you didn't sleep well. And so when you go to practice, you're tired, but you do it anyway because you're devoted to that. Paul says that's, uh, that ought to be your same mentality when it comes to the kind of life that you have in prayer. Got to be a lifestyle, a lifestyle. We, we got to be known for that. You know, everyone's got a platform these days. I kind of talked about that a few weeks ago. Everyone's got a platform, right? Everyone's got a, uh, you know, they, they, they got a shtick that they're known for. You might know Charlie D'Amelio. Charlie D'Amelio, she's a dancer. She's really young. She's all like your age. She's got a bajillion followers. You know, you might know Spencer X. He's known for uh, making beatboxing with his mouth. He's got a bajillion followers. Uh, you might know the crazy cat lady. She's known for cats. You know, all that to say, you ought to be known for prayer. You may be known for a lot of things, but the things that the Christian church should be known for is prayer. That's how Paul says it. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And now think about the opposite of steadfast. Lackluster, lazily, haphazard, you know, off and on. That's not steadfast. And for some of us, I know you know what I'm talking about here. Prayer is hard. And because prayer is hard, we don't give it the attention it deserves. We're not following the word of God here when we say, when Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, because we're so caught up with a million other good things to do that the best thing we should do doesn't get the best of our ability. So these are three desperately needed prayer practices that Paul wants us to understand. Continue steadfastly in prayer. I'm working off of that concept. And the first thing that you ought to do in your prayer practice is pray strategically. Pray strategically. When Paul says continue steadfastly in prayer, he says being watchful in it, being watchful in it. And that's where I'm getting that concept of strategic prayer. The concept of watchfulness in prayer is constant. Scripture is replete with, with ways that this is highlighted. But let me just give you a few. Uh, when Paul's talking to his disciples, he says, watch and pray. So there you go. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now tell me that's not a good description of prayer as you experience it, right? Prayer is something that we desire. If you're a Christian, you desire it. Your spirit yearns to be in prayer and communion with God. And yet you also know that physically, that's hard. It's hard to keep your mind focused. It's hard to keep your eyes on Christ. But this is what God says that we're supposed to do. And he says, watch and pray. What is that idea of watching me? Well, watching in the sense that you are alert to the dangers that are in front of you and beside you and around you. 
You're watchful. It's like being a sentry. It's like being a security guard. You know, security guard, he kind of walks the perimeter. He's got a flashlight. He might have a, a very powerful taser. He's, he's watchful and he's aware of all the dangers. He knows where the weak parts are. And God is saying through the words of Paul that your prayer life ought to have a similar kind of vigilance, that you're watchful about the ways that you are weak. You're watchful about areas of temptation and sin. And Paul says it like this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. It's a kind of a, uh, you know, if you ever taken like NyQuil, NyQuil makes you all droopy and drowsy and kind of puts you to bed really well. That's why I like using it when I'm sick because it just knocks me out. But Paul says Christians ought not to be drinking spiritual NyQuil. We ought to be sober minded. We ought to be watchful about all the things that are around us. Uh, specifically, he says, not only temptation, Paul says, but also your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring what? Yes, a cat a cat people. This is why we don't like cats as Christians. I digress. A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The idea here is that if you're not aware, if you're not paying attention, you're going to be devoured because you're going to walk into one of his traps. You're going to find yourself overwhelmed by the work of the enemy. You have an enemy. He's looking for ways to take you out. And you ought to know that. Scripture repeats the warning. You got to pray strategically, having your eyes wide open. So what does this look like then? As you're praying, when you're praying strategically, the idea is that you're, you're, you're recognizing, Lord, I'm weak in these areas. Lord, I see my friend. She's struggling with this addiction. God, I see my bro. He seems to be going to the websites constantly, or he's following these people that he shouldn't be following. You're aware of people's sin, not to blast them, but to pray for them so that they could be protected. You're, you're, you're aware of your own sin. God, keep me from evil. God, please protect me from myself. Lord, help me to love righteousness and to hate the wicked things that I do. Now, Lord, I, I find myself gravitating toward lying, toward lust, toward gossip. I find myself gravitating toward laziness or disrespecting my parents because they make me angry. Praying strategically means that you're praying against sin. You're aware, get eyes wide open about the ways in which the devil wants you to sin against the Lord. Pray strategically. That's a desperately need prayer practice. If you're not already aware of your sin and letting that draw you to confession and, and dependency upon the Lord, you're not praying right. What else? The first thing. So we say prayer ought to be a lifestyle, a practice. We're continuing steadfastly in prayer. The first aspect is being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Uh, so the second part of it is the thanksgiving aspect of it. You know, it might be tempting as you're praying strategically and you're seeing the world around you and in terms of black and white, man, sin and righteousness, it might be easy to get cynical and say, man, what's this all about, Lord? There's abortion, there's, you know, there's anger about this and there's hostility about that. And I see people doing things that dishonor the Lord. You might be getting cynical. And so Paul reminds us, even though you're praying strategically, there ought to be a lot of Thanksgiving wrapped up in your prayer. Have you noticed that in the last, I don't know, couple of weeks that we've been talking about this, Thanksgiving repeatedly comes up. And that's because the Bible makes it clear that as a Christian, even though prayer is a part of our lifestyle, thankful prayer is probably chief in that. Well, we have every reason to be thankful. And so even if our prayer is lamenting, we're sad or we're angry about something or we're asking, uh, we're asking to have God's protection over somebody, it has still got the flavor of thankfulness. The idea is, is something like this. If, if, uh, well, let me, let me show you here. 2 Corinthians 9. Um, Paul says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supporting the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing any thanksgiving to God. The idea here is that all of our lives, 
every day you live, every time you sit down for a meal, every time you put on fresh, clean clothes, every time your eyes open and you can see colors if you're not colorblind, every time your legs walk and, and, and they're healthy legs and they're not, they're not messed up, or every time you take a breath and you're not struggling to breathe, every time you drink clean water, every time you walk down the street and you got sunlight blasting upon you, every time you go to the beach, legally go to the beach, and it's beautiful and the waves are crashing and you got the bioluminescence, these are things to turn and say, God, thank you for life. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your common grace, not only toward me, but for all the people that I live with. Thank you that we have law and order for the most part. You know, we're not ransacked by anarchy. God, thank you for all the things that you give me. So even though Christians pray in reality, we are aware of evil and wickedness, we still pray thankfully. This is a pattern. This is a, 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 a characterizing effect of our lives. We pray thankfully. Okay, last thing here. We, this, these are the desperately needed things. I, I want you to look at verses three and four. He says, at the same time, as you're praying about these things, praying for yourselves, pray also for us. Who's the us? Uh, Paul's missionary band. Pray for us who are spreading the gospel, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, and that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul's overwhelming concern. He's like, even though I'm in prison, I want to preach Christ. I don't care if I'm in Chino Penitentiary, uh, I want to preach Christ. I don't care if, if, I'm, you know, if, I'm, if I'm locked up in a federal penitentiary, I want to preach Christ. Help me, guys. Pray for me that I would make it clear. Paul doesn't ask for deliverance. Is that not amazing? Paul doesn't ask for deliverance. He asks for you to pray for him that he would be faithful to declare the word of Christ in prison. So three desperately needed prayer practices. Let me just throw them all at you. Pray missionally. Pray strategically. Pray thankfully. Pray missionally. Your desire ought not to be, God, please deliver me from this bad situation. Your desire ought to be, Lord, use me in this situation. Doesn't mean you can't pray to say, God, get me out of this bad situation. But it does say, God, even if you don't, even if you don't, will you please, will you please give me the grace to, to proclaim Christ no matter what that is? That's why whenever I go visit people in the hospital, and I get to do that regularly because I'm a pastor and I have the privilege of that. Whenever I visit people in the hospital, I constantly pray, God, help them be a good witness where they are. I don't want their pain to overwhelm their sensibilities about who Christ is. I want their pain to drive them to prayer. And then when those nurses or doctors come in, they have joy. And when the doctors and nurses say, man, how is this person in so much pain and having so much joy? They could say, it's because of Christ in me. Praise God. Pray missionally. In your life, for the life of others, pray that God would use you, the coronavirus, to use your graduate degree, to use your high school diploma, to use your sports platform, to use whatever it is about you to spread the fame and glory of Christ. This is what Paul's concern was, and this ought to be your concern. Three desperately needed prayer practices in the church today is to pray strategically, being eyes wide open, to pray thankfully, overflowing with gratitude, and to pray missionally, spreading the word and message of Christ. Now, that's the one internal aspect of this sermon. The next two points are going to deal with the way that we, we deal with externals, how we deal with others around us. I want you to look at Colossians 4 or 5. We're going to see just one verse as Paul makes this clear. He says this. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Remember the word walk, peripateo, it doesn't mean literal physical walking. It means a way of life. As you live your life, live and do things in this particular way. What way? He says, walk wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Now it's important here because the, the primary uh, the primary driving verb or the, the, the imperative is to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Uh, walk in wisdom is what he's saying. I want you to be utterly aware of how people are thinking about you. Now let me try to nuance this because I don't want to sound like I'm asking you to be people pleasers. I'm not. Here's the idea. And I'm going to put it like this. Point number two, you need to, as a Christian, you need to protect your reputation. Protect your reputation. You're a Christian. You need to protect your reputation. I think of the word protect, and I can't help but think of one of my favorite memes. I know this is, um, I, I, I have this meme that I enjoy. It's the, it's the one, um, he protect, he attack, and he does whatever. You know that one? You guys know what I'm talking about? He protect, he attack? You guys know. Okay, some of you, I see some of you nodding. Uh, one of my favorites is this. He doesn't protect, he doesn't attack. But most importantly, he constantly meow for additional snack. That's a cat for you guys. That's exactly, and I see you, Sienna. I see that cat running in front of you. See, he doesn't even care. I'm preaching and he's trying to distract you. That's the devil right there. That's the devil. <sighs> Cats. He attack, he attack, but most importantly, he attack. <laughs> I mean, just tell me, you don't, this is exactly, this is a cat right here. I'm just saying, cats don't care what you think about them. Cats do not care if you think they're great or you think they're terrible. They don't care. As long as you feed them, they don't care. <laughs> like even if you feed them, they don't care. They don't like you. Don't be like a cat. You need to care about your reputation. Yes, that's my transition. Don't be like a cat. Care about your reputation. Paul says again, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So let's, let me help develop this idea of protecting your reputation. Protect your reputation. All right. First of all, you need to remember that you are always on display. You are always on display. What does this mean? You're being watched all the time, Christian. If you, if you proclaim Christ as a believer, people are going to make assess, assessments of your life. They're going to make assumptions about Christians because of how you act. Yes, you specifically. And here's the thing. It's like when I, when I come on these, when I do IG Live or when I'm doing these, I'm thinking about my audio. I'm thinking about my lighting. I mean, I'm always aware of how, uh, of how this comes across because I want it to be good. I want it to be right. And in a similar sense, when you're, when you're being th think, thoughtful that you are on display, you're going to be like, okay, am I doing anything that's offensive? Am I saying anything that, that would cause anyone to stumble? Is there anything about my life that is not right or doesn't make sense? I mean, this is the kind of intentionality that we should have. And here's the thing. Uh, you're strangers in this foreign land. That's the whole idea here. You walk in wisdom toward outsiders, right? Outsiders, not insiders. Outsiders, people that are going to make judgments and assessments about you because you're a stranger. You're not part of this world. When I went to Guatemala, it was easy to see that I was not Guatemalan. I mean, besides my dark skin, when I started talking, they knew I was not a Guatemalan. It was clear. Uh, and, and my dressing style was different. I mean, if you walk around, it's clear who is a Guatemalan and who isn't. It's a very clear thing here. And the Bible says that because you're a stranger and an exile, you're going to be different. You're going to stand out. And you should stand out. You should look different. You should sound different. You should be very different from the world around you. Peter says it like this. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, uh, as strangers in a foreign land, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the outsiders, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's looking to the very end game. He's saying, by your good deeds, by your obedience, by your sensitivity, people will magnify God because of you. 
You're on display at all times and all places. Why does this matter? Well, because you're an ambassador, young person. You're an ambassador. You now represent God. You no longer represent yourself, which is why your reputation matters. It's not because you need a good reputation for your sake. It's because you need a good reputation for God's sake. You want your life to convey Christ because you're an ambassador. You represent King Jesus in all that you do. Which means when you think about your social media and you think about the things that you post or think about the things that you like or think about the people that you follow, you're going to ask the question, does this represent Jesus? My following this person, does this represent Jesus? My, my liking this post, does this represent Jesus? My tacit endorsement of this person or tagging this other thing, does that represent Jesus? When you drive, when you drive, you represent Jesus, probably because you have a Compass Bible Church sticker on your car, especially so of that. You represent Jesus when you drive. That's a hard thing for some of you. What you wear when you're making fashion choices, you represent Jesus. So you might ask the question to yourself, does is my clothing in any way offend the sensibilities of outsiders? And it's not that we're, we're necessarily having everything dictated by the outside watching world, but we are thoughtful. We're wise as serpents and we're, we're as gentle as doves. I got that right. Wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. When you think about the kind of brands that you support, think about the things that you buy, you think about the kind of, and even what you spend your money on, whether or not you spend money on consumer goods or whether you give to your church, you know, the way that you spend your money. Why? We are ambassadors for Christ. Why does this matter? Because we want people to come to Christ. And our lives can either be attractive in our reputation or destructive, destructive in our reputation. Our lives are either attractive or destructive. We're either drawing more people to Christ by the way that we live or we're repulsing people away from Christ by the way that we contradict the message of Christ. We want people to come to Christ. You're always on display, young person. You're always on display. And not only that, as we're on display, again, the ultimate goal in mind is that all these people become Christians, which is why it says we're making the best use of the time. The best use of the time is not about productivity. It's not about being efficient. It's not about having a top three, you know, to-do list. It's about honoring Christ and bringing people to know him. Your most important objective in this life is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Make disciples. Every single one of us ought to feel the burden and the compulsion to say, I need my friends, my neighbors, my, my coworkers to know Christ. That's the most important thing about me. That's the most important thing for them. They don't need to have a better life. They don't need to have a better car. They don't need to have a better job. They don't need to have better time management. They need to know Christ. That's making the best use of the time. As someone once said, you may be the only Jesus some people ever see. You may be the only Bible some people ever read. You ought to feel that because I think that's more and more true today than it's ever been in the past because now Christians are becoming, uh, becoming antagonized by our culture. And so now Christians are not seen as noble. They're not seen as good. They're not seen as anything favorable. And so when you act toward outsiders, when you live toward outsiders, they're looking at you and making judgments about Jesus. So important that you realize that the ultimate goal for us is not self-aggrandizing. It's glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way. He says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I like that. I like that analogy. You ought to smell like Jesus, guys. When you walk past, you know, some people, they wear so much cologne, you walk past me, smell it or perfume. They're like, oh, that's, that, I know who smell that is. I know their smell. Um, and that's fine. But that ought to be the same thing for Christians. For some of us, uh, the smell of Christ ought to be just emanating from us. That when people walk past us, like, oh, I smell Jesus on them. For some people, that'll be repulsive. 
And for others, that'll be the most amazing smell in the world. We ought to smell like Jesus. Protect your reputation, young people. Protect your reputation. Last, last verse, verse six here. Let's finish this up. Verse six, Paul says there's not only a way to, uh, to act toward outsiders um, in, in general, but that, there's also a way that he needs us to speak toward them. He says, let your speech always be gracious, gracious. And it's not just gracious, but it's seasoned with salt. It's, uh, it's truth, truthful, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person you know, how to answer each person. So it's protecting your reputation. And part of that reputation protection is also learning how to speak with grace and truth. So point number three, I'm going to put it like this here. I need you to point number three, speak with grace and truth. Yes. It's not on the screen just yet. Hold on a second. It's coming now. Speak with grace and truth. I got on a tangent as I was preparing for this message and I started looking up uh, this thought here that I had about Californians having an accent. Have you ever heard that Californians have an accent? Some people say that we do. Um, and I've always thought that they're wrong. Uh, but I found out that when people say accent, they don't necessarily always mean like a, a certain tone uh, or waves. You know, we don't, we don't draw our R's out. We don't, uh, we don't say, uh, what is the East Coast? I mean, you know, we don't sound like Texans. We don't sound like uh, people from Massachusetts or Wisconsin. We, we don't have different mannerisms with our, with our tone. Ours is in the verbiage that we use. So for instance, you might be a Californian if you've ever said take the five south. Instead of saying take five south, which other states apparently that's what they do. They don't, they don't put a the in front of the freeway name. They just say take, take 15. Uh, okay, no, we say take the 15 or take the five. You might be a Californian if you said, uh, yeah, I'm stoked. Stoked is a Californianism. You ever said that's gnarly? That's a California thing. If you've ever said bro, bra, bra, that's a California thing. If you've ever said the words rad, that's a California thing. Californians do have an accent. It's just not. It's it's not what you normally think of. It's a type of uh, phraseology. It's terminology that we use that is very much us. And if you've ever used that language, you know you're a Californian. Christians have an accent too. Our accent is gracious speech that is seasoned with salt. All day, always, all the time. So what does a Christian accent sound like? Well, first of all, it is deliberately kind and respectful speech. Deliberately kind and respectful speech. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. The idea here is that when we talk to people, we are speaking to them in a kind of term that says, I respect you. I respect you. Uh, even if I don't know you, because you're made in the image of God, I respect you. That is the default setting for Christians. Deliberately kind and respectful speech. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, some, something about me that changed, I, I think, was one of the bigger things is that I suddenly had a, a much gentler way about me with other people. I mean, I, sir, ma'am, uh, yes, please, no, thank I mean, certain, in, in my mind, I guess now common, became something that God kind of wanted me to do. I felt like, man, I really want to show respect for people because I want to be gracious and kind and, and attractive in my witness. Just de- deliberately kind and respectful speech. Uh, it, it's... It's a, it's a demeanor and posture of care for people. It's Philippians 2.3, where Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. It excludes vulgarity and profanity. It excludes uh, offensive speech in any way. It is a kind of soft answer that turns away wrath. Um, it's the kind of a conversation that, uh, that is dignified. That's what, that's what the conversation is that is for a dignitary, an ambassador. This is what's fitting for a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that you agree with everything they say. 
or that they people won't harm you, but it does mean that you have a default posture toward people. And, and then only that, but you are speaking faithfully true and honest words. And, and the, the, the sense of this, I want to be sure for, for you to understand is that there is grace here. It's gentle. It's, it's not, it's not overtly confrontational. It's not necessarily aggressive, faithfully true and honest speech is characterized by the fruit of the spirit, right? And gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. So this, what this means then is that we're not afraid to deal with the truth. We're not afraid to tell the truth. We're not afraid uh, to, to uh, we're not afraid to be people of integrity. Uh, we don't live in half truth land. Uh, we don't, we don't tolerate pretense. We're the kind of people who uh, our relationship with God and others is built on the foundation of truthful speech, faithfully true and honest speech which is why it's so important that the gentle part of this be a factor because we know that when people speak the truth, often it hurts. The truth is a powerful and often painful reality for us, uh, which is why when we think about Jesus, John chapter four, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, who's had a ton of husbands, he didn't call her a hussy or a floozy or say, get away from me, you adulterous woman. He wasn't harsh with her. He was incredibly gentle, but he did not shy away from the tr truth. He said, it is true that you do not have a husband because you've had five and the one that you're with now is not your husband. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's the kind of attitude. That's the kind of response we should have. That's the kind of um, accent that we as Christians ought to have. If you're a young person, your language ought to sound deliberately kind of respectful, and it ought to be faithfully true and honest speech. Christians don't shy away from the truth. Christians don't soft hand or soft pedal it, but we are gentle with it, guys. This is what it looks like to be a Christian in real life. We don't tolerate lies. We don't tolerate foolishness. We don't tolerate the things that the world tolerates. And I know that's so prevalent today with the, you know, the idea of genders and women's rights and, and the way that we couch language to say something different than what it is. That's not something a Christian tolerates because we deal in the realm of truth. We don't call it a woman's right to choose. We call it murder. We don't call it the things that the world wants to call. And that's why language is so important, guys. It's not just a matter of preference here. Language is a matter of, of theological precision. Language is a matter of life and death, which is why when you go out, when you go out and you're talking to your friends, you got to be careful and be thoughtful. Am I speaking with a Christian accent or am I talking like the world? Do I sound like a Christian or do I sound like the world? That's what Christianity in real life is, guys. This, this whole thing, we talked about prayer being a lifestyle. We talked about protecting our reputation and we talked about uh, speaking with grace and truth. This ought to be the Christian in real life. No more games, no more playing. If we get back in the real world this week and this weekend, God willing, this ought to be a foundational way that you approach God and the world around you. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful that you spent even just a few minutes over time. Let me pray for you and we'll call it a day. God, thank you for giving us your word and for giving it such practical application. I, I'm thankful every time I read your word, Lord, I'm amazed that there's so much just dripping from the text that we can honestly just take away and put it into practice immediately. I pray God that we would not be hearers of the word, but doers. I pray that we would not write the sermon off as something that we already know if we're not putting it into practice the way scripture says so. Help us, Lord, to put this into practice, to have a life in a way about us that is respectful and honors you. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for the privilege to meet together. And we look forward to being together in person. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.